This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Good afternoon. For those of you who haven't met me, for those of you who haven't met me, my name is Tom Miles. I'm the Dean of the Law School, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our Luke Luncheon 2018, and I especially am pleased to welcome all of you to Reunion Weekend 2018. And it's terrific to welcome all of our celebrants and have you here. Uh, I know many of you have traveled from distant locations to be here. I was just talking to a few people who are, I think the farthest is, they've come from Zurich to be here for Reunion. Welcome. And, and I know many of you have come just from a block away at your firm, so welcome as well. Uh, we have over 850 registrants at Reunion this year, so we're really thrilled to have so many of you back to join us. And it's a great pleasure to kick things off with today's speaker. Today's speaker is Professor Todd Henderson. Professor Henderson is the Michael J. Marks Professor of Law and the Mark Claster Memelin Research Scholar. Now, Professor Henderson is a graduate of the law school, uh, and in fact, he is our special guest for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that he's a member of the class of 1998, and is celebrating his 20th reunion this weekend. Uh, now, In addition to being an outstanding and really incredible student who graduated with high honors and order of the coif, uh, he was an editor of the Law Review. One of his great distinctions when he was a student was that he was captain of the intramural football team and captain of the all-university champion. Yes, that's an important part. All-university champion intramural team. And in the 20 years since he graduated, he has uh, an enviable set of accomplishments. He first clerked uh, for Judge Dennis Jacobs of the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Second Circuit. He then worked as an associate at the firm of Kirkland & Ellis. He then moved on to McKinsey & Company, where he was a management consultant specializing in advising advising telecommunications and high-tech clients on business and regulatory strategy. Then we at the law school were very fortunate to get him back as a member of our faculty. And since joining the law school as a faculty member in 2004, he has been a prolific scholar in areas of corporate law and securities regulation. And in the true interdisciplinary spirit of the University of Chicago, he has been a frequent collaborator with financial economists on topics such as insider trading and corporate governance. He is a co-author of the leading casebook in securities regulation. And just last week, he published his most recent book, Outsourcing the Board, How Board Service Providers Can Improve Corporate Performance. So this came out just last week by University of Chicago Press, available at your local bookstore and on Amazon. <laughs> so in addition to his scholarship, Professor Henderson has served as a member of the Adjudicatory Council of FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Association. He is in incredibly high demand as a speaker and visiting professor at universities across the globe, from the University of California at Berkeley to the University of Genoa in Italy. At the law school, he has, of course, taught business organizations and securities regulation, but he has also taught an incredibly wide range of subjects from torts to banking regulation to American Indian law. So we are thrilled to have today Professor Henderson to speak to us about CEOs and large public companies who are also lawyers. So please welcome, Lee, welcome Professor Henderson on Lawyer CEOs. I'm glad to see Tom got the uh, email from my mother on that introduction. Uh, thank you all for coming, and most of all, thank you for supporting our law school. Five years ago, I gave the remarks at the Loop Luncheon on the occasion of my 15th reunion. I'm not a mathematician, but I think that then means this is my 20th. And uh, I'm glad to be here and celebrate that, and glad you all are supporting our beloved institution. I've done a lot in the last 20 years, as Dean Miles said. I've had one wife, 
three kids, four jobs, taught 15 different subjects, and written more articles and books than I can remember. I've lost long track, lost track of where they are or what I said in them. Most of the ideas, of course, were wrong, but being right was really never my ambition. It's far too, too difficult to be correct about anything since most human affairs are far too complex for any one person to have anything meaningful to say about them, let alone be wise or knowledgeable enough to direct the lives of other people. We would all be much better off if those who think that they know exactly how the world should be run and designed took heed from the 16th century French philosopher Michel de Montaigne, who wore a medallion around his neck that said, uh, que sais-je, what do I know? My topic today strives for this humble approach. I'm not here to tell you how President Trump is wrong-headed on steel tariffs or immigration policy, or how he's right on foreign policy, taxes, and deregulation, although I think all of those things. Instead, I have a much narrower goal. I aim to offer some evidence on a question that is relevant to my job as a teacher of law students. Does legal education matter? Or, more particularly, what influence, if any, does being a lawyer have on the decision-making of people who become CEOs of publicly traded companies? The question of the impact of legal education on individuals is obviously relevant to most of us in this room. We went to law school, we invested in a particular type of human capital, and we've deployed those skills in a range of fields from government to business to family life. We believe legal education has value, or at least we did when we agreed to go to law school. When we pass around the collection plate at the end, we'll see if you still feel that way. Legal education is also relevant to some other people in this room who are not lawyers. For better or worse, lawyers have a great deal to say about the way the world is run, mostly Tony Kennedy. Many elected bureaucrats and government officials are lawyers, so are judges and prosecutors, and as we'll soon see, about 10% of CEOs. But there's another reason for you to care about this question for some of you who aren't lawyers. You non-lawyers are here to spend part of your day listening to a lawyer talking about educating other lawyers. That, my friends, is what we call unconditional love. For instance, I have the great pleasure of having my father in the audience. As it happens, he was here five years ago as well. Apparently, retirement means time is worth a lot less than it used to be. In any event, it's a delight for me that he's here and all of you. Now let's turn to the question at hand. Do lawyer CEOs act differently than non-lawyer CEOs? There are two hypotheses about CEOs that we can test. The first possibility, CEOs are CEOs. In this theory, the market for CEO talent identifies the CEO trait, whatever that is. And this trait makes people act like CEOs, not like lawyer CEOs or MBA CEOs or college dropout CEOs or anything else. The second possibility is that CEOs with legal education are different. In other words, law school changes individuals' human capital in ways that manifest themselves in corporate decision making. To get some purchase on this question, I'm going to look at a specific area of potential CEO decision-making. Are CEOs with legal training associated with more or less litigation? If they are, which way does causation run? Do lawyer CEOs cause changes in litigation, or do changes in litigation cause a firm to choose a lawyer to be the CEO? It could be that a lawyer CEO takes the rudder and she trims the sails in a way that reduces the firm's legal exposure, in which case we'd expect businesses run by lawyers to be associated with less litigation. Or it could be that a company hires a lawyer to be the CEO when they are exposed to a big new legal risk, in which case we would expect businesses run by lawyers to be associated with more litigation. Before we get to the data, some background. There is a vast and ever-growing literature on the influences on CEO decision-making and governance. And let me give you a few prominent examples. First, there are numerous studies, only a few of which I'll mention here, which show the influence of personal traits of the CEO on corporate decision-making. Steve Kaplan, my colleague from the Booth School, led a team of researchers that examined the relation between CEO personality traits and firm performance. Their data were the comprehensive personality tests given by private equity firms, 
to choose leaders of their portfolio companies. They found that aggressive characteristics, execution, resoluteness, and overconfidence were positively correlated with buyout success, while softer skills, teamwork, empathy, and openness were negatively correlated with performance. The punchline, if you're picking the CEO, a jerk that gets stuff done is better than someone who feels your pain. In another study, researchers looked at whether good-looking CEOs do better than ugly ones. They gave nearly 700 CEOs an attractiveness score based on their facial geometry, and then they compared the market reaction to the announcement of that person as the new CEO. Shocker, the market likes beauty. Firms that hired beauties had greater returns during the announcement window than ones that went with ugly ducklings. Interestingly, they found this was only true when the press release contained an image of the new CEO, suggesting that causation runs from beauty to performance, not the other way around. In research coming out of Sweden, we learned that height is positively associated with good corporate performance. I especially like this result. The researchers found that intelligence and height at age 18 in the top 1% of the distribution were significantly correlated with becoming a CEO and with firm performance. Another study in what we might call the what if Todd were a CEO category, researchers found that Republican CEOs earned greater profits for shareholders. Tall? Check. Beautiful? Check. Conservative? Check. If anyone out there needs a CEO, I'll admit I'm open to considering my fifth job since graduation. Note I didn't discuss the paper finding that jerks are better CEOs. It seems no one is the perfect CEO candidate, but three out of four ain't bad. The second group of studies in this literature show the impact of professional experiences on corporate performance. For instance, in one that my dad, West Point class of 1962, will like, CEOs with military experience were less likely to engage in corporate fraud and performed better during industry downturns. Financial experience matters too. A series of papers show that CEOs with degrees or work experience in finance carry out more sophisticated financial policies and investment policies that are less sensitive to firm cash flows. When faced with a cash crunch, a CEO that studied marketing at Kellogg might be forced to leave money on the table, turning down NPV-positive projects because of the lack of financing, while a CEO that studied finance at Booth would deploy sophisticated financial engineering to get the job done. Turning now to the specific subject at hand, there is evidence that law training matters as well. On the south side of the Midway, we generally instruct students that risk is something to be mitigated. After all, in the first year, we teach students about packages exploding on train platforms, people with eggshell skulls, and consumers who lose all their belongings on installments loans because they miss one payment on one item. That is Paul's graph, Vosberg, and Williams versus Walker, Thomas Furniture Company, just to refresh your recollection. In upper-level courses, the curriculum is run through with market failures, externalities, and discussions of human decision-making heuristics that could make even the most free, market, uh, free marketeer into a Marxist. Is it any wonder lawyers are risk-averse? Frank Blake, the former chair and CEO of Home Depot, who graduated from a lesser law school in Harlem, said, law school consists of taking normal people and getting them to worry about what no sane person should worry about. <laughs> but lawyers' risks aversion may not be our fault. To quote Lady Gaga, maybe they were just born that way. Before they even show up at graduate school, students may sort into schools and therefore professions based on their risk preferences. The midway plaisance may be like the sorting hat in Harry Potter. Risk-averse people draw House Gryffindor, and they go south of the midway to the law school, where they become courageous defenders of truth, justice, and the American way. Risk-preferring people may draw House Slytherin, and they go to the Booth School, where they spend two years playing golf and sunning themselves in the glass-enclosed quadrangle of the Harper Center, on their, a mere way station on their way to becoming masters of the universe. 
There is some evidence to support this sorting hat theory. In my current 1L elective, Elements of Business Law, I offered the class the following choice to illustrate the concept of risk preferences in decision theory. Here's the choice, $10,000 in cash, or a 50-50 chance of $20,000 or zero. These are equal in expected value terms, and a risk-neutral person should be indifferent between them. Of course, risk takers would go for the corn flip, and the risk averse would take the 10 grand. All 56 law students preferred the sure thing. I'm certain the result would be different with Booth students. In fact, I, may, I suspect many may prefer the gamble just because of the thrill of the risk. <clears throat> Existing research doesn't permit us to differentiate between the human capital and the sorting hat story. Whatever the risk aversion we observe may be due to either. But there is research on the impact that lawyers have on firms. One paper found that elevating the general counsel into the top five in the executive team is effective in curbing regulatory noncompliance and monitoring failures. Another found that if the general counsel is represented among the top executives, this leads to more accurate earning forecasts and less insider trading. It's not just general counsels. In one that my friend is sitting in the back, uh, Eileen Kamrick, uh, class of 84, will like, lawyer directors have a positive influence too. Directors with legal backgrounds on the audit committee are associated with higher financial reporting quality. Most on point for what I want to discuss, recent research suggests directors with legal education are useful in monitoring executives, managing litigation, and reducing regulatory costs. Okay, so what about CEOs? Does it matter whether they're lawyers or not? One might think the CEO is above litigation matters, setting the vision, picking the right lieutenants, and managing external stakeholders and the like. And what matters more is whether the general counsel has an important role or there's directors on the board. After all, one may think that all CEOs are risk takers, pushing the envelope. And having other lawyers watch them is more important than whether the CEO is a lawyer themselves. CEOs may be CEOs, whatever their educational training. We all had classmates we believed were like this, that they ended up in law school by mistake. They were destined to be business leaders, not lawyers. One of my classmates closed the acquisition of his first company in the middle of our Civ Pro 1 exam. When he walked out in the middle, our hearts were aflutter with possibilities. Was it a panic attack? Was he giving up? Was he, the rich, was he the smartest person in our class? That he would end up as one of the richest people in the Midwest did not occur to us, at least at the time. It didn't occur to me until a few years ago I saw his name in Crane's magazine. Back for a visit recently, he told our students he felt pressure from his immigrant parents to get an advanced degree, and an MBA just didn't count. He chose law school because the opportunity costs were lower since it's a year short than medical school. But all along, he was destined for the boardroom, not the courtroom. In this research, I asked the question of whether law school had any effect on people like him. Did law school impact their way, them in ways that changed decision making? I looked at the period 1992 to 2012, and the data includes about 3,500 CEOs. About 10% are lawyers. We don't have enough lawyer CEOs to divide them into more fine-grained groups based on degrees of experience. Lawyer here simply means they have a law degree. Some may have gone straight from law school to the corporate world. Others may have more extensive legal experience. We'd love to try to unpack these. Does being a prosecutor, a defense lawyer, being in-house versus government, do these matter? But our data sample is just too small to test these. Our litigation data is all federal lawsuits filed during this 20-year period. There were a lot of them. About 154,000 suits over 20 years, meaning on average each firm is sued twice per year in federal court. We don't have data on state suits, they're excluded, but we don't really have any reason to believe they're different along the dimension we care about, so we're pretty confident in our results. Of these suits, about 30% were settled or lost, uh, are settled, and about 2% were lost. The rest were dismissed or dropped out of our sample. The economic impact on firms is large. Average cash cost for the ones that we have data, about $2 million. 
But that vastly underestimates the cost of litigation. Managers are distracted by lawsuits, and reputations, both personal and corporate, may be impacted as well. These additional costs are reflected in the stock market's reaction to when a lawsuit is filed. For the average company in our sample, the stock market drop is minus 0.13%. That's eight million bucks. The market losses are much bigger for certain types of suits. The filing of a securities class action typically results in a stock price drop of 15%. Okay, so there were a lot of lawsuits, a lot of lawyer CEOs, what was the effect on uh, lawsuits from having a CEO? In our baseline results, we simply compared companies with lawyer CEOs and companies with non-lawyer CEOs and asked which one had more litigation. We find that, law, that uh, firms that have lawyer CEOs are associated with less litigation. The differences were not just statistically significant, but also economically significant as they differ by a factor of two. Companies run by lawyers are sued a lot less often than companies run by non-lawyers. At this point, we can't say anything about causation. It may be companies that don't get sued are more likely to hire lawyers as CEOs, since these companies might be risk-averse for other reasons. But we'll look at this question below. We can say that in the run of cases, however, lawyer CEOs are associated with less litigation and therefore rule out the alternative story that companies that are in trouble hire lawyers to be their CEOs. Okay, this is where it gets interactive. So here's where the fun starts. I passed out some uh, handouts that you have there. Don't be intimidated if you haven't seen one of these before. I'll take you through it. But if you turn to page two, you'll see this result broken down by types of litigation. The last row on that table is the difference between litigation in firms with lawyer CEOs and those with non-lawyer CEOs. Start in column three and move to the right, and you'll see the difference in the number of suits between these two groups in categories ranging from antitrust to products liability. If you've never looked at an economics paper before, this table may look strange. But we're looking for two things. First, the sign of the difference. If there's a minus sign, that means there's less litigation in lawyer-run firms. And second, whether there are little stars or asterisks. The more stars, the more confident we are that we can reject the alternative hypothesis that this is attributable to chance. Econometrics is more art than science. So you should be skeptical when you see data like this. Only if the intuition makes sense should you give these stars any credit. It's just too easy to manipulate data. We've tried our best to be above board and transparent about our hypotheses and testing methods, but so far you haven't seen much. Back to the table. You'll see there are minus signs in all but one category, products liability. And there are stars. This means the difference is not likely a fluke in the data. Although the sign is negative for environmental suits, we don't see any stars, meaning we can't say anything about that one way or the other. There aren't very many environmental lawsuits, and that's why we don't get the statistical power to get stars. What about products liability? Well, frankly, it would have been much cleaner had this come out the other way. So the positive sign, more litigation, and the stars, that's a bit of a problem that we have to address. But I don't think it's fatal for two reasons. First, products liability may be cases where they're relatively more immune from the CEO's meddling compared with other types of cases. It's not difficult to imagine a new lawyer CEO coming in and reducing the incident of antitrust violations or employment discrimination, but having less ability to impact product design, at least initially. Second, and related, this may be an example where reverse causality has more explanatory power. Perhaps there are firms that have a large amount of products liability claims in which a lawyer is hired to be the CEO specifically to manage the claims in the aftermath. This was true in a lot of the pharmaceutical litigation involving Vioxx and other companies, for instance. If true, and there is some evidence, as I said, to suggest this, this would be akin to the work of my economics colleague and Freakonomics uh, book author, Steve Levitt, who found higher crime rates are associated with more police. Obviously, the police aren't committing crimes, to explain the data, although police are committing crimes, uh, but the causation runs the other way. Police are a task to high crime neighborhoods. They're not the ones causing most of the crime. 
At this stage, we can say, except for products liabilities, lawyers are associated with less litigation. You can see that in the second column. But this may not be because they have a law degree. There could be something else that is driving the result that's correlated with having a lawyer as a CEO. If conservative firms are less likely to be sued and more likely to hire a lawyer to be the CEO, then we would see a negative association between litigation and lawyer CEOs, but not because of anything the CEO did, but because of something that predated her arrival at the company. Economists have developed techniques to address this problem. Econometricians use a technique called a regression to isolate the impact on one thing called a dependent variable from other things called independent variables. We write an equation in which the dependent variable is estimated based on the independent variables. On the left side, we put the dependent variable. This is the variable we're asking about. In our case, the amount of litigation. And on the right side, we put everything we think of that might affect the amount of litigation. There's a big literature that estimates litigation based on firm characteristics. Market, market, firm size, market to book ratio, leverage, profitability, stock return, volatility, all of these things have been shown repeatedly to influence the amount of litigation. The traits of the CEO may be correlated with the amount of litigation too. CEO age and number of years on the job may predict litigation because older CEOs with extensive experience may be better at managing litigation. And of course, the most important variable for us on the right side is the thing we're adding to this uh, equation, which is a binary variable, is the lawyer a CEO or not? So we write an equation with all these, we ask a computer to solve the problem, and by solution it estimates the influence of particular variables on the thing of interest, the amount of litigation. That output of that calculation is on page three. The independent variables appear in the first column. These are the things we're testing to see whether they influence the amount of litigation. The other columns are types of cases. The number in each column is a coefficient for each independent variable. And this is the best estimate of the solution to this problem. Uh, is, uh, that's the influence of every factor. Some variables drive more litigation, those with positive signs. And some drive less litigation, those with negative signs. Some are important, those with stars, and some are not very important. Those are the ones without stars. Look at the top row. That's lawyer CEO. How important was this variable in deciding how much litigation a firm would be uh, engaged in? And look for two things, signs and stars. In the second column, all cases excluding products liability, the sign is negative, and there are three stars. CEOs are associated, the fact that you have a lawyer CEO is associated with less litigation, even correcting for all these other things, and the result is very unlikely to be explained by chance. Good for us, there are other stars and signs of interest in the table. Look where the second row intersects the second column. Being a big company, log of total assets, means you're much more likely to be sued. This is the theory of deep pockets. Another example, look at the impact of volatility and securities fraud. A very strong result. A positive correlation between volatile stock returns and being sued, not a matter of chance. Or take tenure and civil suits. The results suggest that longer serving CEOs are associated with less litigation. Experience matters. What do these numbers mean exactly? Well, that's a good question. Look at the number called a coefficient for civil suits. These are mostly employment discrimination cases. And the coefficient there is minus 0.3. That means nothing if you don't know the average number of suits. That's the reduction caused by having a lawyer CEO. But you need to know the baseline. How many times are firms sued on average? Well, that's about 0.4. A 0.3 reduction off of a chance of being sued about 0.4 times per year is a 75% reduction in employment litigation. Similarly, antitrust suits are reduced by 74%, security suits by 72%, labor suits by 38%, personal injury suits by 37%, and contract suits by 16%. This is a huge result. If we're correct that lawyer CEOs are associated with less litigation, Another question is whether the CEO is doing the work or not. 
or whether there's someone else in the company doing it, and it's their presence in the company is just associated with having a lawyer CEO. Maybe all we're observing is the CEO has lawyer friends, and the CEO elevates the general counsel in the hierarchy because the general counsel is also a lawyer, and CEO who are lawyers like other lawyers. Maybe the CEO who's a lawyer stacks the board with lawyers because they like other lawyers, and that these people, the general counsel and lawyer directors, are the ones that are doing the work. To test this, we run a regression. We have, and this is seen on, um, on the next page, we put the amount of litigation on the left side, and we put lawyer CEO, important general counsels, and lawyer directors. And what we find, the lawyer CEO variable is still strong, the effect of a strong GC or lawyer director, sorry Eileen, this suggests the reduction is driven by the CEO, not indirectly driven by the presence of others in the corporation. Okay, we've gone pretty far, but there's more to go if we want to say anything confidently about a lawyer causing the reduction in lawsuits. After all, it may be there are characteristics that are associated with going to law school that result in less litigation, but aren't about what you learn in law school. The result be, could be driven by the selection story or a human capital story. Maybe getting into gra and graduating from law school is really hard, and this is associated with greater skill and ability or a strong work ethic, and thus the reduction in lawsuits may arise from a pure selection effect. Law students may just simply be smarter than MBA students. Or consider another selection story. There is credible and persistent evidence that females are more risk-averse than males. If this is true, and I don't have a strong view on this, and it's true that women are more likely to be lawyers than MBAs, then the impact we're seeing on firm litigation may just be decisions made by female CEOs who just happen to be lawyers. In other words, gender-based risk aversion may be causing the reduction in litigation and, and also the choice to go to law school. In this story, I'm irrelevant to this outcome, and the quote from the CEO of Home Depot is not what's going on. To address this, we include additional controls in our regression, gender, several background, uh, educational backgrounds, like did you go to an Ivy League school, and proxies for the talent or professional connections of CEOs. As you can see on page five of your handout, the results are largely robust to these control variables. The lawyer CEO variable still has stars and the right sign, and the other variables don't. This isn't about men versus women. It's not about educational background or which schools you went to. It's something about being a lawyer. Okay, at this point, I hope I've convinced you there's something, some negative associated between a lawyer running a firm and the number of lawsuits uh, at that firm. But there's a question that still should be troubling you. How can we be sure the lawyer CEO is causing the reduction in litigation and not the other way around? After all, perhaps risk-averse company hire lawyer CEOs who are also risk-averse, hence the attraction, birds of a feather flock together. And it is this conservatism of firms that's causing the reduction in litigation, not the lawyer. The problem here is ubiquitous in research. If you watch the news, you will see research <clears throat> purporting to show all sorts of things, none of which are likely true. People who eat dark chocolate or drink red wine or drive Swedish cars live longer. I'm not doubting the results. Presumably the researchers aren't lying, but that doesn't mean they're telling us anything useful. The world is full of true but irrelevant information. The problem is that maybe people who are rich or who exercise a lot, or go to good doctors, or care about their health, or whatever, eat expensive chocolate, drink more red wine, and drive Volvos. If this is true, other things may be causing, these other things may be causing the outcome. If you hear one of these reports, and go out and eat chocolate, or buy a Volvo, you're doing it wrong. Maybe the lesson should be, get richer, or exercise more. Okay, in my research, we use two different techniques to see if we can tease out causation from the data. I'll describe one and mention the other briefly. The first is the use of what's called an instrumental variable. The second is a natural experiment. In both cases, we're looking for something that breaks the link 
between conservative firms and hiring a lawyer as the CEO. In the case of the instrumental variable, we're trying to find something that predicts whether a firm will hire a lawyer as a CEO that has nothing to do with the characteristics of an individual firm. In the case of the natural experiment, we're looking for some external factor or shock that changes the environment we can use to test and see how particular firms respond. Instrumental variables and natural experiments aren't easy to find, which is why most researchers give up before they have to. So what I'm about to tell you is the most challenging bit. The instrumental variable we use is a bit strange, so bear with me. Research has shown that companies have a preference for local talent when choosing a CEO. In one study, about 40% of all transitions in CEOs took place within a 60-mile radius of the company's headquarters. They picked local talent. We can exploit this preference. Here's how. First, we add up all the number of people within 60 miles of every firm's headquarters who have a law degree, who are either CEOs, directors of public companies, or in the top five of public companies. This is our local CEO talent pool. We then use this instrument to predict the choice of whether a firm will hire a lawyer CEO. In other words, given the distribution of potential CEOs that are lawyers, what is the chance that a firm chooses a lawyer to be their CEO? Then we take this result and use it to predict the filing of lawsuits against these firms. That made no sense, so let me try to explain it again. In the first stage, we assign a probability to a particular company that they hire a lawyer as a CEO based on how many lawyers in the geographic area are plausible CEO candidates. Each company is assigned a percentage chance, and we don't care whether they actually do hire a lawyer to be their CEO. In fact, we don't want to know, because if we did know, that would then create the problem of the link between firms and picking the CEO. We then take the probability of a firm hiring a lawyer to be their CEO and see whether or not this probability affects the amount of litigation against that firm. Consider two cities. Chicago, lots of lawyers. Lots of potential lawyer CEO candidates. And Indianapolis, where there aren't as many. In the first stage, we give every Chicago firm a probability they hire a lawyer as the CEO. And then we, we look at the litigation against Chicago firms and see whether it's less than Indianapolis firms because there's more likely to be lawyers as CEOs. If you look at page six, if I haven't lulled you to sleep already, you'll see that the results. The first is the coefficient in the top, the coefficient of a lawyer being a CEO. It's low, but we can assign it differently based on different geographies. And then when we test that in our regression, we find a negative effect on litigation from where your company's headquarters is and how many potential lawyers there are in that city. That's a pretty remarkable finding. We show the number of lawyers in a local labor market for companies is correlated with less litigation against firms headquartered in those places. This is pretty good evidence, at least from where I stand, that lawyer CEOs are causing the reduction in litigation, not that firms that face less litigation threat are hiring lawyers. Briefly, let's look at the natural experiment. We looked at the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley. Sarbanes-Oxley dramatically increased litigation risk for firms in some types of areas. And we looked at how the stock market reacted to firms after the passage of, of Sarbanes-Oxley based on whether they had a lawyer CEO or not. And consistent with our theory across a large number of firms, the market reacted very positively to firms that had lawyer CEOs and not positively to firms that didn't have lawyer CEOs. An exogenous shock that changed the litigation environment and the market like lawyer run CEOs better in high litigation uh, environments after the passage. This is all I can say about causality. It's pretty good, but not perfect. I have two last things to say. The first one is about the mechanism, and the second is the one that matters the most, which is, does any of this matter? In terms of mechanism, I can't say much, 
we don't have ability to test this. There's two possible theories. The first one is the lawyer CEO shows up on the first day and they just see all sorts of stuff the company's doing that are illegal. Uh, please, human resources, stop asking female job candidates if they're going planning on getting pregnant. Hey, head of sales, please stop sharing our price and term sheets with our competitors. These are easy no-brainers, and maybe the CEO trims the sales. There's an alternative theory, which is when the CEO is a MBA, the head of HR, the head of sales, they push the boundaries. And when a CEO comes into the corner office, they think, uh-oh, I better trim the sales because she's watching what I do and I'm going to be evaluated at a different metric. It could be either of these things and we have no ability uh, to test these. Okay, we can't, uh, there's a lot of other questions we'd like to test. I'll mention one and then I just want to say something about firm value and then I'll shut up and take your questions. Uh, we looked at whether going to a top school matters. So we looked at where CEOs went to law school. It had no effect. So whatever it is that is driving the effect we observe, you can learn it at uh, the Toledo College of Law as well as you can uh, at the U of C. Okay, there's one topic left to discuss, and that's whether reducing litigation is a good thing. The answer is obvious. Being sued is costly, and therefore reducing it is a good thing, right? Wrong. You went to the University of Chicago, you know that that's not the right answer. Whether reducing litigation is a good thing depends on the costs of reducing it. The optimal corporate policy would be to spend $1 to reduce litigation until the return from doing so yielded a dollar in savings. No rational person would spend $2 to avoid a dollar in costs, litigation or otherwise. To test whether firms are behaving optimally, we can look at the valuations of firms run by CEOs with legal training. And the results are on page 7, if you haven't already crumpled your pages up and thrown it at, at me or someone else. We use a metric called Tobin's Q, which is how the sort of market value of a company compared to its book value. If you compare two firms with the same assets and one has a higher market uh, uh, value, that suggests uh, more value is being added by the CEO. Firms run by lawyer CEOs are less valuable than firms run by non-lawyers. The sign's negative, and there are stars. One potential explanation for this result is that lawyers produce, uh, pursue risk management through more conservative firm policies at the expense of growth. We present a bunch of paper, a data in the paper that is significant with this. Lawyer CEOs invest less in R&D. They have much less volatility. They are more conservative than non-lawyer CEOs, and their conservatism is not limited to litigation. Lawyer CEOs are sale trimmers, and this has good effects and bad effects. <clears throat> but our story's not quite done. Back to page 7. There are three other rows to consider. These are, for, these are uh, we broke out industries where there's lots of litigation risk. So, high litigation risk industries, industries with lots of growth potential, and pharmaceutical firms. Prior work tells us predictors of these are things that predict being sued, and we, allow, we can sort into high and low risk of being sued. Pharma companies are particularly susceptible to litigation in a variety of areas. The rows of interest are the interaction between lawyer-CEO and these three sets of industries. Those are in the three rows after lawyer-CEO. In each case, the sign, the sign is positive and there are stars. In other words, in these companies, high growth, high litigation risk, and pharmaceutical companies, lawyer CEOs create value. The gains from reducing litigation are greater than the costs. While this result should be interpreted with some caution, it's consistent with our prior finding the value of a lawyer CEO comes from active litigation management. Okay, I'm done, but let me summarize quickly my three main findings. My research shows lawyer CEOs not only reduce the frequency of most types of litigation, but also their severity. It shows this result is at least partially causal, rather than driven by pure passively by lawyer CEOs mapping onto firms with low litigation risk. 
The result is not driven by omitted variables like the CEO talents or the presence of other parties with litigation or legal training like the firm's general counsel or lawyer directors. The results demonstrate that the reduction in litigation is consistent with the implementation of more cautious risk management in firm policies, whether it's earnings management, management of analyst expectations, or increased oversight. At the end of the day, risk management pays off in a subset of firms with high litigation risk and high growth firms, but leads to higher, lower firm value in all other firms. It seems, as in all things, hiring a lawyer sometimes pays off and sometimes doesn't. As for all of us, and the question we started with, law school does seem to matter. Thank you. Okay, we have 13 minutes, and uh, I'd love to hear some questions. Yes, please. Is your data only based on lawsuits filed against the, the companies, or does it also take into account whether there are, the lawsuits filed by companies were lawyers with the CEO? Uh, great question. So the question was, uh, are we only looking at firms playing defense? What about when they play offense? Uh, we collected the data. Uh, we're in the midst of looking at it. The sneak preview, uh, the trailer version, although there won't be any explosions, is they sue less often too. Um, it reminds me of the quote from uh, Elihu Root, who famously said, half of a good lawyer's job is telling their clients they're damn fools and should stop. And if the lawyer is their own uh, lawyer, I think probably uh, experience probably tells them, you know, like going to war, uh, you don't want to do it. So that's the preliminary version. We're teasing out whether or not there are any uh, other effects to look at. So offense and defense. Uh, unfortunately, uh, so yes, and um, the, the fact that there is a negative association and there is causation leads us to think that in all areas except products liability, that's not true across 3,500 firms. We looked at some examples of transitions, and you know it's in the paper if you're really bored someday and you want to read it. Uh, we looked at some transition issues. So how did litigation change for one firm going from a non-lawyer CEO to a lawyer CEO? And we didn't find lots of anecdotal evidence to support that theory. There were a few. They happened mostly in products liability cases and mostly involving pharmaceutical companies. So I forget if it was Merck or Bristol-Myers or whoever it was. One of them, after the Vioxx scandal, hired a lawyer CEO and the other didn't. And their performance really was affected by that. It was a good idea to hire a lawyer CEO to deal with the Vioxx litigation. Honestly, when I sat down to work on this, that was my hypothesis. That what we were going to see was the Levitt result with police more lawyer, more litigation. But not because the lawyer was doing anything that caused the firm to be sued, but they were brought in to clean up the mess. We don't find that. Just, yeah, pick some, yeah, please. Uh, within the 3,500 firms over a 20 year period, there must be a lot of firms that some of the time had lawyer CEOs and some of the time did not. Did you try to run correlations within those firms to see when there was a change in litigation? Uh, we did, and uh, we don't report the results. Uh, we didn't see any uh, dramatic change. We also looked at the periods uh, after uh, the CEO had been in place for a few years to see if there was a change, around, you know, a, a sort of an equilibrium result. Uh, and we didn't find a significant change in the way that the prior question suggested. Uh, if anything, after a firm hires a lawyer CEO, litigation tends to fall down and then tends to rise when they choose a non-lawyer CEO, but there wasn't enough uh, 
There weren't enough results or statistically significant results to present it in what is effectively a finance paper. If this was a law review article, we would have made a lot out of these few examples. Uh, and then, of course, given advice in section five of the paper on how companies should be behaving and why they should change all that they're doing. But being a finance paper, we were more humble than that. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a twofer for you. So the first one is I, I noticed that you included the R squared on all your columns, but you didn't talk about it. So uh, could you perhaps talk about uh, how you view the R squared results? And then the second is uh, just what your gut is on the, the leverage correlation. I would assume that highly leveraged environments would uh, bring out the strengths in a lawyer CEO, conservatism, you know, uh, being able to pour through documents and be on top of the details, and uh, there's a negative correlation there. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. Okay, so. Um with respect to leverage, I'm just looking at the regression result here. So there's a negative association between uh, leverage and uh, some lawsuits. Um, you know, I haven't given it a lot of thought. Uh, that's it. So oh, firm value. I see. Uh, and so the, the, what is the question again? Whether or not... Oh, that could be. That's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, and certainly we could do more to tease out that, to look at the financial uh, leverage and the do more accounting work and look at how CEOs respond in that environment. I'm not, I, don't, I haven't looked at that result, so it's hard for me to, to come up with a good answer off the top of my head. It seems like a plausible hypothesis that we could test. Um, it may be, though, that for highly levered firms, performance really matters more. I mean, I think that's the idea when private equity firms buy a company and they increase the leverage. Uh, the debt is discipline, and they're really pushing for uh, extremely good performance. And the idea of being a conservative lawyer CEO, I don't associate it with risky, uh, highly levered firms. I associate it with more like managing pretty stable companies. But we, we could certainly test that. Uh, about the R-squareds, uh, I think I might do a phone-a-friend and call in the dean here, uh, who is actually a pretty way more sophisticated empirical scholar than I am. Uh, he mentioned the, uh, the partnership that is happening in law schools. And one of the interesting things about this paper, uh, so I apologize if you were aboard or lost, is this is sort of the way of the future of legal scholarship. Uh, for a long time, it's just been, you know, here's my uh, pontification on the world. There's a lot more data being used, and I'm not teched up enough to know the sort of uber-level details. This is a partnership, and I have a co-author who's a finance professor. Um, so what should I make of R-squareds that are 0.1 uh, relative to the power of the statistical tests? I'm going to punt to the dean. I mean, my... My reaction to the R squares is like, oh, they're pretty good. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Straight from the horse's mouth. They're pretty good. They're not great. <laughs> the de Dean's prerogative. Given your results, do you have an investment strategy to recommend on the basis of So... That's a great question. Uh, I think the answer is, so I don't get in trouble with FINRA, I don't want to be passing out investment advice. Uh, and my advice to all of you is don't ever invest in anything other than a low-fee mutual fund. But other than that, uh, and by the way, in fact, Fidelity issued a, a free mutual fund uh, that's being paid for by money they make from securities lending. So it's a zero-load fund, which is, I think, the wave of the future, and pretty awesome. To answer your question, though, uh, uh, yeah, so it's possible that if you see a firm that is not in a high-litigation area industry, and they hire a lawyer CEO, sell. <laughs> that person is, on average, going to destroy value. I see my neighbor has a question. Or a certain number of years of practice. 
Yeah, so just, uh, you went to and graduated from law school. We would have loved to look at, did you have a JD MBA? Did you work in government versus private practice? Were you a prosecutor, defense lawyer? Did you go in-house? There's lots of nuances that we could, you know, how is this correlated with years of professional experience? Lots of interesting questions we could ask. With only about 350 lawyers, we couldn't get the data, and, and Dean Miles could tell us exactly why and the statistics of that, all that, but we just couldn't be confident with our answers. We did look at things like education. Did you go to Columbia or did you go to Kalamazoo? Uh, and we didn't see a result. Um, we looked at some other things, again, with smaller data sets like uh, did you work in as an in-house counsel? And we just didn't have the statistical power. We didn't, we didn't find a result, so we got a null result. But we couldn't be really excited about the null result because we didn't have this. There were no stars. was whether or not the lawyer CEOs are a skewed data set with respect to lawyers generally. And that must be true. Uh, it's probably the case that our risk preferring, like if we rank ordered the current law school graduating class from the most risk preferring to the least, you'd end up with business, plaintiff's lawyers, defense firms, and then, you know, I don't know, uh, government. Uh, that probably is a pretty good spread. And what we're pulling from are the lawyers who are um, going into business, the most risk-preferring. We're not going at the defense counsel. So I think my pool is the most risk-preferring, but they're not plaintiff's lawyers. But I think the plaintiff's lawyers are probably less, have a less risk preference than the people who go into business, but maybe not. Um, the people who go into business in in-house as lawyers and become CEOs are probably risk takers, more risk takers than people who are plaintiff's lawyers, would be my guess. But our evidence suggests that compared with people who go and get an MBA, the most risk preferring lawyers are more risk averse than the people who go get MBAs. And, and as I, I mean, in my class, I observe this all the time. I ask them all kinds of risk questions. These are about the most risk averse people you could possibly imagine. And then we spend three years telling them all the horrible things that can happen in the world. <laughs> We're doing a double whammy. Okay, one more question. Uh, so, as, um, so litigation is very public. Scandals are very public. Their leverage is very public. And as somebody who's practiced You're never going to know it. So I'm curious whether you gave any thought to the fact that a lawyer CEO, their actual the, the, the benefits that they bring to the company are visible, and you can't see it. So the way they think, maybe some strategies that change the company going in a way that would have failed, or um, you know, just changing a lot of the policies and things. That it's actually invisible, so you can't measure it or see it the way you would see litigation. Great. What, ha what do we do about the invisible things that happen inside of firms? So we're at a huge disadvantage. We're observing only the things we can observe. I can't see stuff that is invisible. So you're, you're, of course you're right, and you have a lot more experience at this than I do. So I, as a researcher, I'm assuming there's all kinds of stuff happening in firms that I can't observe, just like there's all sorts of things that are happening inside of human beings that we can't observe. As researchers, all we can do is look at the stuff that you do, and what we're interested in is two metrics, 
litigation you get involved in when the stuff that you're working on that's secret goes wrong and there ends up being a lawsuit that's filed. I observe that. And then I observe how much the market values your firm. Again, it may be a great place to work, and the lawyer CEO creates an environment where everybody is kumbaya and feels really great and it's all esprit de But at the end of the day, if it doesn't make any money, it's not really worth a lot to the external shareholders, to the stakeholders. So those are the two things I'm looking at. That doesn't mean that's the only two things that matter in the world. Creating workplaces that are happy places for people to work, hey, great. Start a company and go and do it. I just can't, I don't have good data about that. We could go around and ask people what their happiness is working here or there and see if CEOs are correlated with average employee happiness or some other things. So we're limited in the things that we're looking at. I don't mean to suggest that's all that matters in the world. If you're starting a company and you want it to have some other values, maybe uh, social value in the world, like doing social justice through your firm, maybe hiring a lawyer is fabulous and it always is the best thing to do. That's just not what we were looking at or the data. Okay, thank you all for coming. Thank you, thank you very much, Todd. That was a, a fascinating uh, talk, a talk that was, was more than just pretty good. Uh, it was a real pleasure to, to welcome everyone to Reunion 2018 and to our Loop Luncheon. Uh, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, for those of you who are here for Reunion, I look forward to seeing you all throughout the weekend. Uh, again, welcome, and please join me one more time in thanking Professor Henderson. Audio File is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.